0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist.
1: Welcome to episode number 55 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Like I explained in the first episode of this year, episode 51... I will play a pre-recorded talk on the last Sunday of every month. And what you are listening to now is the first last Sunday of 2016. But instead of one pre-recorded talk, I am actually going to play two. Perhaps uh, many of you have already heard these two talks because they appear virally on a regular basis. But I still think they are good enough to be worthy to listen to here on the National Ball Alchemist podcast and back-to-back, no less. Together, these talks are only about 30 minutes anyway. The first one of these two band TED Talks that I'm going to play is called The War on Consciousness and was given by author Graham Hancock, most famous for his books Fingerprints of the Gods and Supernatural. In this talk, Graham outlines the use of psychedelics, particularly ayahuasca, and how it may be essential for self-improvement, spiritual growth and social progress, as well as for curing addictions to more harmful drugs. Ted decided to pull this talk from their website because, among other things, they deemed that Graham made statements about psychedelics that seem to be both non-scientific and reckless, and that he engaged in pseudoscience. Anyone who has had a real direct experience with ayahuasca in the right set and setting knows that what Graham is saying is closer to scientific truth than anything a scientist has managed to cough up. But I let you decide for yourself. On a side note, it is quite funny that a talk called The War on Consciousness was banned, as if to prove that there really is a war on consciousness. Which it is.
2: After six million years of boredom, the uh, evolutionary uh, uh, ascent of our species from the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee, something extraordinary happened to us less than 100,000 years ago, which, by the way, is long after we'd become anatomically modern. Um, It was a kind of uh, emergence into into consciousness less than 100,000 years ago, really less than 40,000 years ago, when we became fully symbolic uh, creatures. And this uh, great change has been defined as the single most important step forward in the evolution of human behavior, is intimately associated with the emergence of the great and transcendent rock and cave art all around the world. And uh, over the last 30 years, uh, researchers led by Professor David Lewis Williams at the University of Witwatersrand uh, in South Africa and and, and many others have suggested an an intriguing and, and radical possibility, which is that this emergence into consciousness was triggered by our ancestors' encounters with visionary plants and the beginning of shamanism. Uh, if you analyze the cave art, it's, there's not time to go into the details here, but there are so many details that make it clear that this was an art of altered states of consciousness, of, of, of visions, um, and, and uh, that plants like the Amanita muscaria mushroom or psilocybin mushrooms appear to have been directly connected with this uh, sudden and radical change. So to investigate this this possibility, when I got interested in this mystery, I went down to the Amazon, where there are still surviving shamanistic cultures today, and where they drink the powerful visionary brew, Ayahuasca, of which the active ingredient is dimethyltryptamine, DMT, which is actually closely related at the molecular level uh, to psilocybin. Now, normally, DMT uh, cannot be activated orally. When we encountered it in the West, it's generally smoked. There's an enzyme in our stomachs called monoamine oxidase, which switches off a DMT on, on contact. Uh, but in the Amazon, they've got round this problem, and they say it was the spirits that taught them how to do it. The DMT in the ayahuasca brew is contained in these leaves from a plant that they call chacruna uh, in the Amazon. And there they mix it together with this vine. And out of the 150,000 different species of plants and trees in the Amazon, this is the one that contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which switches off that enzyme in our stomachs and allows the DMT in the leaves, when the two are married together and cooked in water, to be absorbed orally and takes us on a, a four hour journey into extraordinary realms. Now, it's uh, no joke to drink ayahuasca. The ayahuasca brew um, it has, has a foul, uh, foul taste, <laughs> really, really hideous and a dreadful, dreadful smell. Um, and, and after you've drunk your cup, you'll find within 45 minutes or so that you're sweating, that you're feeling nauseous. Pretty soon, you may well be vomiting, you may well have diarrhea. So, you know, nobody's doing this for recreation. Um, and, and, and I'd like to add that I don't think any of the psychedelics should be used for recreation. They have much more serious and important mission with, uh, with, with humanity. Um, so we're not doing this for fun, but what draws people to ayahuasca again and again to brace themselves for this experience, and you do have to brace yourself, is its extraordinary effects at the level of consciousness. And one of those effects has to do with creativity, and we can see the creative, cosmogenic impulse of ayahuasca in the paintings of ayahuasca shamans from Peru, like the paintings of Pablo Amaringo here, those richly saturated colours, the, the amazing visions that they, that they reproduce. Um, and, and, and this creative impulse has also spread to Western, uh, Western artists. Many Western artists now have been deeply influenced by ayahuasca and are also painting their visions. Uh, And and as these paintings show, another universal experience of ayahuasca is the encounter with Seemingly intelligent entities which communicate with us telepathically. Now, I'm making no claim one way or another as to the reality status of these entities we encounter. Simply that phenomenologically, in the ayahuasca experience, they are encountered by people all over the world. And most frequently of all, the uh, spirit of ayahuasca uh, herself, Mother, mother Ayahuasca, uh, who is a, is a healer. And although she's kind of the mother goddess of the planet, She seems to take a direct personal interest in us as individuals uh, to heal our ills, to want us to be the best that we can possibly be, to correct errors and mistakes in our behavior that may be leading us down the wrong path. And, And this is perhaps why Uh, and it's uh, an untold story, really. Uh, Ayahuasca has been fantastically successful in getting people off harmful addictions to hard drugs such as heroin and uh, cocaine. Jacques Mabit at the Takiwasi Clinic Uh, in Peru, brings heroin and cocaine addicts out there for a month, gives them 12 ayahuasca sessions, and they have encounters with mother ayahuasca during those sessions that lead them not to wish to take heroin or cocaine anymore, and more than half leave completely free of their addiction, never return to it, and don't even have Withdrawal symptoms and the same incredible healing work was being done in Canada by Dr. Gabor Maté until the Canadian government uh, intervened and stopped his healing practice uh, on the grounds that ayahuasca itself was an illegal drug. Now I have some personal uh, experience of this. I I have not been addicted to heroin or cocaine, but I had a 24-year non-stop cannabis habit. And um, this uh, started off smoking the herb and laterally uh, vaporizing it, but the basic uh, truth is that for 24 years uh, I was pretty much permanently stoned, and uh, I enjoyed being stoned, and I felt that it helped me with my work uh, as, as, as a writer, and perhaps at some point uh, it did, but when I first encountered ayahuasca, I'd already been smoking cannabis for 16 years, and almost immediately, ayahuasca started giving me messages that this was no longer serving me, that it was leading me to behave in in negative and unhelpful ways towards others. And of course, I ignored those messages for years and years, and went back to being stoned 16 hours a day. Um, But that negative behavior that ayahuasca was pointing up Uh, did actually get worse and worse. I don't want to put down cannabis, and I believe it's the sovereign right of every adult to choose to smoke cannabis if they wish to do so. Uh, But I think I was overusing it. I think I was abusing it, not using it responsibly. And I became more and more paranoid, jealous, possessive, suspicious. I was subject to irrational rages. I often made the the life of my beloved partner, Santa, a, a, a misery. And when I went down from my regular encounter with ayahuasca in October 2011, I was given the most unbelievable kicking by Mother Ayahuasca. Uh, And I was put through an ordeal. It was a kind of life review. Uh, And it's not an accident that Ayahuasca is the vine of the dead. Uh, I was shown my death. uh, And I was shown that if I came to death and what awaits us after death, without having corrected the mistakes that I was making in my life, uh, that it would be a very bad thing to meet for me. And, and, and actually, Mother Ayahuasca literally took me to hell. And that hell was a little like this hell painted by uh, Hier- Hieronymus Bosch, uh, a truly terrible place, and, and a little like the place that the ancient Egyptians called the judgment hall of Osiris, where our souls are weighed in the scales in the presence of the gods against the feather of truth, of justice, of cosmic harmony. And I was shown that the path I was walking, my abuse of cannabis and the behavior associated with it was going to lead me to be found wanting uh, in the judgment and that I might face uh, annihilation in the world beyond death. So perhaps not surprising that when I came back to uh, England later in October 2011, I gave up cannabis, and uh, I've never smoked it again since then. And actually, and again, I'm speaking only personally with no comment on others' use of cannabis, it's as though a monkey has been lifted off my back. Um, I'm liberated in incredible ways. Far from my creativity being inhibited, I I find myself writing much more productively, much more creatively, much more focused and and, and much more efficiently. Uh, as, as well, and I begun to be able to address those negative aspects of my behavior, which cannabis had revealed, and hopefully to make myself slowly, it's a long progress into a more nurturing, more loving, more positive person. And this uh, whole transformation, it really has been a, a personal transformation for me, uh, was made possible by this encounter with death that Mother Ayahuasca gave me. And, you know, that leads me to ask, what is death? Our materialist science reduces everything to matter. Materialist science in the West says that we are just meat, we're just our bodies. So when the brain is dead, that's the end of consciousness. There is no life after death, there is no soul. We just rot and are are gone. But actually, many honest scientists should admit that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science. and and that we don't know exactly how it works. The brain's involved in it in some way, but we're not sure how. Could be that the brain generates consciousness the way a generator makes electricity. If you hold to that paradigm, then, then of course you can't believe in life after death. When the generator's broken, consciousness is gone. But it's equally possible that the relationship, and nothing in neuroscience rules it out, that the relationship is more like the relationship of the TV signal to the TV set. And in that case, when the TV set is broken, of course, the TV signal continues, and this is uh, the paradigm of all spiritual uh, traditions, that we are immortal souls temporarily incarnated in these physical forms to learn and to grow and to, uh, and to develop. And really, if we want to know about this mystery, the last people we should ask are materialist reductionist scientists. They have nothing to say on the matter at all. Let's go rather to the ancient Egyptians who put their best minds to work for 3,000 years on the problem of death and on the problem of how we should live our lives to prepare for what we will confront after death. And the ancient Egyptians expressed their ideas in transcendent art, which still touches us emotionally today. And they came to certain very specific conclusions that the soul does survive death and that we will be held accountable for every thought, every action, every deed that we have lived through uh, in our our lives. So we better take this precious opportunity to be born in a human body seriously and make the most of it. And in these uh, inquiries into the mystery of death, the ancient Egyptians weren't just exercising their imaginations. They highly valued dream states And it's now known that they used visionary plants like the the hallucinogenic blue water lily. Uh, And it's interesting that the ancient Egyptian tree of life has recently been identified as the acacia nilotica, which contains high quantities of DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the same active ingredient that we find in ayahuasca. Now, it's difficult to imagine a society more different from the society of ancient Egypt than our society today. We hate visionary states in this society. In our society, if we want to insult somebody, we call them a dreamer. In ancient societies, that was praise. And we have erected huge apparatuses of armed bureaucracies who will invade our privacy, who will break down our doors, who will arrest us, who will send us to prison, sometimes for years or possessing even small quantities of psilocybin or substances like DMT, whether in its smokable form or, or, or in the ayahuasca brew. And yet, ironically, DMT is, as we now know, a natural brain hormone. We all have it in our, in our bodies, and it's just that its function remains unknown for, for lack of research. And it's not as though our society is opposed in principle to altered states of consciousness. I mean, billions are being made by the unholy alliance of psycho- psych- psychiatrists and, and big pharma in overprescribing uh, drugs to control so-called syndromes like uh, depression or attention deficit disorder uh, in, in uh, teenagers. Um, and we have a, a love affair in our society with alcohol. We, we glorify this most boring of drugs, uh, despite the, the, the terrible uh, consequences that it often has. And of course, we love our stimulants, our tea, our coffee, our energy drinks, our sugar, and, and, and huge industries are, are built around these, these, uh, these substances, which are valued because of the way they alter consciousness. But what all these approved altered states of consciousness have in common is that none of them contradict or conflict with the basic state of consciousness valued by our society, which I would call the alert, problem-solving state of consciousness, which is good for the more mundane aspects of science. It's good for the prosecution of warfare. It's good for commerce. It's good for politics. But I think everybody realizes that the promise of a society over-monopolistically based upon this state of consciousness has proved hollow. And that this model is no longer working, that it's broken in every possible sense that a model can be broken, and that urgently we need to find something to replace it. The vast problems of global pollution that have resulted from the single minded pursuit of, of profit, the, the horrors of, of nuclear proliferation, the spectre of of hunger that millions every night go to bed starving, that we can't even solve this problem, despite our alert, problem-solving state of consciousness. And look what's happening in the Amazon, the lungs of our planet, this precious home of biodiversity, the old-growth rainforest being cut down and replaced with soya bean farms so we can feed cattle, so that we can all eat hamburgers, only a truly insane global state of consciousness could allow such an abomination to occur. And I did a back-of-an-envelope calculation during the Iraq War. It seems to me that six months' expenditure on the Iraq War would have solved the problem of the Amazon forever, would be sufficient to compensate the peoples of the Amazon so that no single tree ever needed to be cut down again to garden and, and look after that amazing resource. But we can't make that decision as a global community. We can spend countless billions on warfare, on hatred, on fear, on suspicion, on division, but we can't get together the collective effort to save the lungs of our planet. And this is perhaps why shamans from the Amazon are now mounting a kind of reverse missionary activity. When I've asked shamans about the sickness of the West, they say it's quite simple. You guys have severed your connection with spirit. Unless you reconnect with spirit and do so soon, You're going to bring the whole house of cards down around your heads and ours." And rightly or wrongly, they believe that ayahuasca is the remedy for that sickness. And many now are being called to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca, and ayahuasca shamans are traveling throughout the West, offering the brew, often under the radar, often at personal risk, uh, to bring about consciousness change. And it's true that the message of ayahuasca, the universal message, is about the sacred magical, enchanted, infinitely precious nature of life on Earth and the interdependence of material and spiritual realms. And it's impossible to work with ayahuasca for long without being deeply and profoundly affected by this message. And let's not forget that ayahuasca is not alone, that it's part of an ancient worldwide system of the targeted, careful, responsible alteration of consciousness. Uh, it's recently been been shown by scholars that the kykion used in the Eleus, Eleusinian mysteries in, in ancient Greece was almost certainly a, a psychedelic brew, that the soma of the Vedas may well have been a brew based upon the Amanita muscaria mushroom. We have the DMT in the ancient Egyptian... A tree of life, we have the whole global cultures of lo- surviving shamanism, and what it 's all about is a state of consciousness that 's designed to help us find balance harmony. The ancient Egyptians would have called it mart with the, with the universe, and to remain mindful that what we 're here to undertake on earth while immersed in matter is fundamentally a s- spiritual journey aimed at the, the growth and perfection of the soul, a journey that may go back to the very origins of what made us human in the first place. And I stand here invoking the hard-won right of freedom of speech to call for and demand another right to be recognized, and that is the right of adult sovereignty over consciousness. There's a war on consciousness in our society, and if we as adults are not allowed to make sovereign decisions about what to experience with our own consciousness while doing no harm to others, including the decision to use responsibly ancient and sacred visionary plants, then we cannot claim to be free in any way. And it's useless for our society to go around the world imposing our form of democracy on others while we nourish this rot at the heart of society and we do not allow individual freedom over consciousness. It may even be that we're denying ourselves the next vital step in our own evolution by allowing this state of affairs to continue. And who knows, perhaps our immortal destiny as well. Thank you, very much. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Rupert Sheldrake is an author and a researcher in the field of parapsychology, most known for his morphic resonance concept. In his TED talk entitled The Science Delusion, Rupert states that modern science rests on ten dogmas which fall apart upon examination, and he also promotes his hypothesis for morphic resonance. TED removed this talk because they questioned whether his list of science dogmas is a fair description of scientific assumptions, and that there is little evidence for some of his more radical claims, such as his theory of morphic resonance. Of course you have to make up your own mind listening to Rupert's talk but I think it is ironic that Ted banned both his talk and Graham Hancock's talk when their own slogan is Ideas Worth Spreading. Apparently ideas that challenge the mainstream idea of consciousness and science are not worth spreading. In a sense by banning these talks they inadvertently proved their merit and they certainly failed to stop them from spreading. As soon as the talks were banned, they turned viral. So thank you, Ted, for the help of really spreading ideas worth spreading.
3: The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. This is a very widespread belief in our society. It's the kind of belief system of people who say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. It's a belief system uh, which has now been spread to the entire world. But there's a conflict in the heart of science between science as a method of inquiry based on reason, evidence, hypothesis uh, and collective investigation and science as a belief system or a world view. And unfortunately the world view aspect of science has come to inhibit and constrict The Free Inquiry, which is the very lifeblood of the scientific endeavour. Since the late 19th century, uh, science has been conducted under the aspect of a belief system or worldview, which is essentially that of materialism, philosophical materialism. And these sciences are now wholly owned subsidiaries of the materialist worldview. I think that as we break out of it, Uh, the sciences will be regenerated. What I do in my book, The Science Delusion, which is called Science Set Free in the United States, um, is take the ten dogmas or assumptions of science and turn them into questions, seeing how how well they stand up if you look at them scientifically. None of them stand up very well. What I'm going to do is first run through what these ten dogmas are, and then I'll only have time to discuss one or two of them in a bit more detail. But essentially the ten dogmas which are the default worldview of most educated people all over the world are first that nature is mechanical or machine-like. The universe is like a machine, animals and plants are like machines, we're like machines, in fact we are machines. We are lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase, with brains that are genetically programmed computers. Second, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made up of unconscious matter. Um, There's no consciousness in stars, in galaxies, in planets, in animals, in plants. And there ought not to be any in us either, if this theory is true. Um, So a lot of the philosophy of mind over the last hundred years is being trying to prove that we're not really conscious at all. Um, So the matter's unconscious, then um, the laws of nature are fixed. Um, This is dogma three. The laws of nature are the same now as they were at the time of the Big Bang, and they'll be the same forever. Not just the laws, but the constants of nature are fixed, which is why they are called constants. Dogma four, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. Um, It never changes in total quantity, except at the moment of the Big Bang, when it all sprang into existence from nowhere in a single instant. The fifth dogma is that nature is purposeless. There are no purposes in all nature and the evolutionary evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Dogma six, uh, the uh, biological heredity is material. Everything you inherit is in your genes or in epigenetic modifications of the genes or in cytoplasmic inheritance. It's material. Dogma seven, Memories are stored inside your brain as material traces. Somehow everything you remember is in your brain in modified nerve endings, phosphorylated proteins. No one knows how it works. But nevertheless, uh, almost everyone in the scientific world believes it must be in the brain. Dogma eight, your mind is inside your head. All your consciousness is the activity of your brain and nothing more. Dogma nine, which follows from dogma eight, Psychic phenomena like telepathy are impossible. Your thoughts and intentions cannot have any effect at a distance because your mind's inside your head. Therefore, all the apparent evidence for telepathy and other psychic phenomena is illusory. Um, People believe these things happen, but it's just because they don't know enough about statistics or they're they're deceived by coincidences or it's wishful thinking. And Dogma 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. That's why governments only fund research into mechanistic medicine uh, and ignore complementary and alternative therapies. Uh, Those can't possibly really work because they're not mechanistic. They may appear to work because people would have got better anyway uh, or because of the placebo effect. Um, But uh, the only kind that really works is mechanistic medicine. Well, this is the default worldview which is held by almost all educated people all over the world. It's the basis of the educational system, uh, the National Health Service, the uh, Medical Research Council, uh, governments, uh, and uh, it's just the default worldview of educated people. But I think every one of these dogmas is uh, very, very questionable. And when you look at it, uh, it, it turns, uh, they, they fall apart. I'm going to take first the idea that the laws of nature are fixed. This is a hangover from an older worldview before the 1960s when the Big Bang Theory came in. People thought that the uh, whole universe was eternal, governed by eternal mathematical laws. When the Big Bang came in, then that assumption continued even though the Big Bang revealed uh, a universe that's radically evolutionary, about 14 billion years old, growing and developing and evolving uh, for 14 billion years, growing and cooling, and more structures and patterns appear within it. But the idea is all the laws of nature were completely fixed at the moment of the Big Bang, like a cosmic Napoleonic code. As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, uh, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. (laughs) Well, in an evolutionary universe, why shouldn't the laws themselves evolve? Um, After all, human laws do, and the idea of laws of nature is based on a metaphor uh, with human laws. It's a very anthropocentric metaphor. Only humans have laws. In fact, only civilized societies have laws. As C.S. Lewis once said, to say that a stone falls to earth because it's obeying a law makes it a man and even a citizen. (laughs) Uh, It's a metaphor that we've got so used to, we forget it's a metaphor. In an evolving universe, I think a much better idea is the idea of habits. I think the habits of nature evolve, the regularities of nature are essentially habitual. This was an idea of put forward at the beginning of the 20th century by the American philosopher C.S. Peirce. And it's an idea which various other philosophers have entertained, and it's one which I myself have developed into a scientific hypothesis, the hypothesis of morphic resonance, which is the basis of these evolving habits. According to this hypothesis, everything in nature has a kind of collective memory. Um, Resonance occurs on the basis of similarity. As a young giraffe embryo grows in its mother's womb, uh, it tunes in uh, to the morphic resonance of previous giraffes. It draws on that collective memory. It grows like a giraffe and it behaves like a giraffe because it's drawing on this collective memory. It has to have the right genes to make the right proteins. But genes, in my view, are grossly overrated. Uh, They only account for the proteins that the organism can make, not the shape or the form or the behaviour. Uh, Every species has a kind of collective memory, even crystals do. This theory predicts that if you make a new kind of crystal for the first time, uh, the very first time you make it, it won't uh, have an existing habit. But once it crystallizes, then the next time you make it, there'll be an influence from the first crystals to the second ones all over the world, uh, by morphic resonance, it'll crystallize a bit easier. The third time, there'll be an influence from the first and second crystals. There is, in fact, good evidence that new compounds get easier to crystallise all around the world, just as this theory would predict. It also predicts that if you train animals to learn a new trick, for example, rats learn a new trick in London, then all around the world, rats of the same breed should learn the same trick quicker, just because the rats have learned it here. And surprisingly, there's already evidence that this actually happens. Anyway, that's my own hypothesis in a nutshell of morphic resonance. Uh, Everything depends on evolving habits, not on fixed laws. But I want to spend a few moments on the constants of nature too, because these are again assumed to be constant. Things like the gravitational constant, the speed of light, are called the fundamental constants. Are they really constant? Well, when I got interested in this question, I tried to find out. They're given in physics handbooks. Handbooks of physics list the existing fundamental constants tell you their value. But I wanted to see if they'd change, so I got the old volumes of physical handbooks. I went to the Patent Office Library here in London, and uh, they're the only place I could find that kept the old volumes. Normally people throw them away when the new values come out. uh, They throw away the old ones. When I did this, I found that the speed of light dropped between 1928 and 1945, by about 20 kilometers per second. It's a huge drop because they are given with errors of any fractions of a dec- uh, fra- decimal points of error, and yet all over the world it dropped, and they were all getting values very similar to each other with tiny errors. And then in 1945 it went up, 48. It went up again, and um, then people started getting very similar values again. I was very intrigued by this and I couldn't make sense of it so I went to see the head of metrology at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington. Um, metrology is the science in which people measure constants. And I asked him about this, I said, what do you make of this drop in the speed of light between 1928 and 1945? And he said, oh dear, he said, you've uncovered uh, the most embarrassing episode in the history of our science. <laughs> so, I said, well, could the speed of light have actually dropped? And that would have amazing implications if so. He said, no, no, of course it couldn't have actually dropped. It's a constant. So, oh, uh, well, then how do you explain the fact everyone was finding it going much slower during that period? Is it because they were fudging their results to get what they thought other people should be getting and the whole thing was just produced by, in the minds of physicists? Um, said, we don't like to use the word fudge. I said, well, what do you prefer? He said, well, uh, we prefer to call it intellectual phase locking. <laughs> uh... So I said, well, if it was going on then, how can we be so sure it's not going on today and that the present values are produced by intellectual phase locking? And he said, oh, we know that's not the case. I said, how do we know? He said, well, he said, We've solved the problem. And I said, well, how? He said, well, we fixed the speed of light by definition in 1972. (laughs) So I said, but it might still change. He said, yes, but we'd never know it because we defined the meter in terms of the speed of light. So the units had changed with it. So he looked very pleased about that. They'd fixed that problem. But I said, well, then what about big G the gravitational constant, known in the trade as Big G, it's written with a capital G, Newton's universal gravitational constant. That's varied by more than 1.3% in recent years. Um, And it seems to vary from place to place and from time to time. And he said, oh, well, those are just errors. And uh, unfortunately, there are quite big errors with Big G. Um, So I said, well, what if it's really changing? I mean, perhaps it is really changing. And um, then I looked at how they do it. What happens is they measure it in different labs, they get different values on different days, and then they average them. And then other labs around the world do the same, and they come out usually with a rather different average. And then the International Committee on Metrology meets every ten years or so and average the ones from labs around the world to come up with the value of big G. But what if G were actually fluctuating? What if it changed? There's already evidence, actually, that it changes throughout the day and throughout the year. What if the Earth, as it moves through the galactic environment, went through patches of dark matter or other environmental factors that could alter it? Maybe they all change together. What if these errors are going up together and down together? For more than 10 years, I've been trying to persuade metrologists to look at the raw data. In fact, I'm now trying to persuade them to put it online on the Internet with the dates and the actual measurements and see if they're correlated to see if they're all up at one time all down at another. If so they might be fluctuating together and that would tell us something very very interesting. But no one has done this. They haven't done it because G's are constant. There's no point looking for changes. You see here's a very simple example of where a, a dogmatic assumption actually inhibits inquiry. I myself think that the constants may vary quite considerably, uh, well, within narrow limits, but they may all be varying, and I think the day will come when scientific journals like Nature have a weekly report on the constants, like stock market reports and newspapers. You know, this week, big G was slightly up, the, speed on, the s- charge on the electron was down, the speed of light held steady, and so on. Uh, um, so... Um, that's one area, just one, uh, one area, where I think uh, thinking less dogmatically could open things up. One of the biggest areas is the nature of the mind. This is the most unsolved problem, as Graham just said, uh, that, that science simply can't deal with the fact we're conscious. Um, and it can't deal with the fact that our thoughts don't seem to be inside our brains. Um, our, our, our experiences don't all seem to be inside our brain. Your image of me now... Uh, doesn't seem to be inside your brain, yet the official view is there's a little Rupert somewhere inside your head. And everything else in this room is inside your head. Your experience is inside your brain. I'm suggesting, actually, that vision involves an outward projection of images. What you're seeing is in your mind, but not inside your head. Our minds are extended beyond our brains in the simplest act of perception. I think that we project out the images we're seeing. And these images... uh, touch what we're looking at. If I look at you from behind, you don't know I'm there. Could I affect you? Could you feel my gaze? There's a great deal of evidence that people can. The sense of being stared at is an extremely common experience, and recent uh, experimental research uh, suggests it's real. Animals seem to have it too. I think it probably evolved in the context of predator-prey relationships. Prey animals that could feel the gaze of a predator would survive better than those that couldn't. This would lead to a whole new way of thinking about ecological relationships between predators and prey, also about the extent of our minds. If we look at distant stars, I think our minds reach out in a sense to touch those stars and literally extend out over astronomical different distances. They're not just inside our heads. Now, it may seem astonishing that this is a topic of debate in the 21st century. We know so little about our own minds that where our images are is a hot topic of debate within consciousness studies right now. I don't have time to deal with any more of these dogmas, but every single one of them is questionable. If one questions it, new forms of research, new possibilities open up. And I think as we question these uh, dogmas that have held back science so long, um, science will undergo a reflowering, a renaissance. I'm a total believer in the importance of science. I've spent my whole life as a research scientist, my whole career. Um, but I think by moving beyond these dogmas, it can be regenerated once again and become interesting and, I hope, life-affirming. Thank you.
1: I will post links to these talks in the program notes as well as links to TED. The program notes you can find at naturalbornalchemists.com. Now let's end this episode with an oldie. Billie Holiday, they can't take that away from me. See you next Sunday with a fresh new episode. Freedom is in the mind. The way you wear your hair.
0: The memory of all